Hi guys and welcome back to another true crime and makeup time video. Today's case takes place in Australia and because of this case, every time I see a high rise apartment building, I get the shivers. Now imagine this, it's a Saturday morning around 10 a.m. You're having your morning coffee, you know, maybe some breakfast with your significant other or some friends and you're sitting at a nice cafe outside um, there are high-rise apartment buildings next to you and you're overlooking some beautiful greenery at the park across the road. This area of town is usually very busy, very loud, but today it's extremely peaceful and quiet. Something catches your eye and you look over at the high-rise apartments and you see something being thrown from a balcony high up. Now it's really high up, so did someone throw a garbage bag? Luggage? It then hits the ground. Loads of people gather around to see what was thrown. It wasn't a garbage bag. It was a body and it belonged to Lisa Harnham. Before we get into it, if you're new here, my name is Zara and I post a new true crime video every single week. So if you want to see more, definitely leave a comment saying hi and please make sure to subscribe. It would mean so much to me. Before we dive in, I wanted to thank today's sponsor, Relatable. You may already know them from their super fun party games like What Do You Meme, Let's Get Deep, and New Phone, Who Dis? And now they are bringing you their first murder mystery game called Who Killed Mia? If you love a juicy mystery and solving a case, you are gonna love their newest game. Who Killed Mia is a murder mystery game that was made for today's social media age. So the game is based on a fictional influencer called Mia Star, and when she dies at the replay awards, you have to figure out who killed Mia. And you do this by sorting through physical and digital evidence, like hacking into Mia's phone, and use your phone to watch live action videos to figure out who the killer is. This innovative and exciting game is available now on the Relatable website, as well as Walmart, Amazon, and Target. You can also follow along on Instagram at RealMiaStar and WhoKilledMia. I really enjoy playing murder mystery games, especially playing with someone else because they have different thoughts and opinions to me and it really makes me think outside the box. Now, Jay is not particularly into true crime, but he loves games and he loved this one. What I love is the fact that I'm using my phone to solve the mystery because I can get so easily distracted and just hop on my phone and start browsing things. But the fact that I'm using my phone to actually solve the mystery, play the game, makes it so exciting and we're in a social media age, guys, so this is so relevant and so fun. If you're a crime junkie like I am, and I'm sure a couple of you are, you will love this game. So for all my game lovers, my pretend detectives, get this game for your next game night or like me, date night, and find out who killed the world's favorite influencer in Who Killed Mia? A new kind of murder mystery game from Relatable, the creators of What Do You Meme? and get 20% off using promo code ZaraV at relatable.com slash whokilledmia. Don't forget, you can find out who killed Mia with 20% off using promo code ZaraV at relatable.com slash whokilledmia. Thanks so much to Relatable for sponsoring today's episode, and thanks so much to you guys for all your support. Let's get back into today's case. Now, guys, if my voice sounds kind of horrible. It's because I'm still kind of sick. Like it's taking forever to get better. So I have my tea. Hopefully it stays nice and hot and hopefully I don't 
get worse after this video. Now we can begin by talking about Lisa. Her full name was Lisa Cecilia Harnum and she was born in Toronto, Canada. So she was born on the 12th of June, 1981 and she had an older brother named Jason and they both were raised by their single mom, Joan. And she never knew her father. So her mom, Joan, has done quite a few interviews about Lisa and she stated that Growing up, Lisa was always a very smart kid, always very mature for her age. And she was quite close with her brother, Jason. They would play football and she would practice karate with him, although her biggest passion was music and dance. She was a talented dancer and from a young age up until the age of 16, she continued to pursue this passion. She did tap, jazz and ballet and she competed in dance contests all around Canada. During her school years, she was bullied a lot and this took quite a toll on her where she developed a bit of depression and an eating disorder. Her mom said that she basically stopped eating and when she was 18, she finally took her to hospital and she admitted her into the hospital for this eating disorder and she was severely, severely underweight when she was admitted. It was at this hospital that she was actually diagnosed with an eating disorder, anorexia and bulimia, and she stayed at Toronto Hospital for a few months recovering. Her mom does state that they almost lost Lisa a few times as she was battling this disease and it really took a toll on their family. For those that don't know, eating disorders, they don't just go away with treatment most of the time like it's not just something you go in get treated for and then it just disappears it's something that you kind of struggle with on and off your whole life and that's exactly the same with Lisa she just struggled with it on and off for a long time her mom says that when treatment wasn't working for Lisa she was aware of it and she would try different things to get back on track it's like she fought it all the time and despite claims that were made later on Lisa never tried to take her own life. She never wanted to end her own life. She loved her life and her family. As Lisa grew up, she began working in the perfume department of this big department store in Toronto called The Bay. And she actually became really good friends with her coworker, Jenny Romano. They were instantly close and they loved to go out clubbing and going out dancing and they really bonded over that. They would go out all night till early in the morning. Jenny says that Lisa never drank like ever and she just really loved to dance. Lisa was extremely close with her mom Joan and she told her everything and on the days when her and her friends would come back to her place after clubbing it was like you know, eight in the morning, they would all sit around Lisa's dining table and tell her mom, Joan, everything that had happened the night before while Joan would make breakfast for all the girls. Lisa would even say to her mom, Joan, you know, mom, I tell you everything. My friends, they don't tell their moms everything. And it's true. They were just extremely very close. And as she grew up, Lisa was just attracted to older men. And it was just something she was into and her mom would say it's because Lisa was extremely mature for her age but her friend Jenny would say it was more so because Lisa grew up with a single mom right so she grew up seeing her mom struggle struggle to look after you know her and her brother and that's why she was into older men maybe because it offered a sense of security like older men have their life together most of the time and 
that was an attraction for her. You know, security was attractive. In January 2005, Lisa would leave her home in Toronto, Canada to move to Australia. And Lisa had only made this decision to move countries just a couple months before. Now, although Lisa was very scared to start this new chapter in her life, her mother, Joan, and her brother, Jason, were extremely supportive of her. Joan states that the reason Lisa probably decided to move to Australia was because she kept meeting people from Australia at her job at the Bay and this just piqued her interest. She just wanted to move to a new country, wanted a change of scenery, wanted to start a new job. She also really wanted to just live in a hotter climate. She heard that Australia had really good weather. So she moved to Australia on 1st January 2005 and initially she came here on a working visa and it was only a 12-month working visa and her mom Joan, she accompanied Lisa to Australia and she just wanted to see, you know, where her daughter was going to be working, where she was going to be living. She just wanted to make sure she knew everything about this new life. She says she couldn't just let her daughter just go there by herself and figure it out. She wanted to make sure she was okay. Lisa was gorgeous. She had amazing energy. She was confident and she was extremely ambitious. She was really known as a happy extrovert, someone who always smiled, someone who's always laughing, loved to dance. After a few months of living in Australia, she loved it. She loved it so much that she wanted to gain citizenship. So after 12 months, her working visa expired. So now she had to enter a career that was approved by the Australian government in order to stay. So that May, May 2006, she began working at a Sydney cosmetics company and soon she began or entered into a relationship with a co-worker who was 20 years older than her. Now they were pretty happy. They spent most of 2006 traveling the world, going to exotic resorts in Bali, and they even went to this famous masquerade ball in Venice. They quickly became engaged and her mom Joan says they were in a pretty loving relationship. He was pretty respectful of Lisa and he was very nice. He actually asked Jason and Joan's permission before he proposed to Lisa, which, you know, that's really nice. But they were only engaged for a little while before their engagement and soon relationship broke off. And this was mainly due to this large age gap. In 2009, Lisa began working at the Australian Hair and Beauty College in Sydney, and she loved it. She loved the makeup, the hair, the fashion aspect of everything. So she did really well over here. During this time, she began actually dating a married man. And for Christmas that year, her mom comes down to Australia to spend time with her. And she asks her, like, Lisa, do you really want to be doing this? Do you really want to get yourself into this type of relationship? And she tells her, like, you know, I don't think this is a good idea. And Basically, after her mom goes back to Toronto after the holidays, Lisa ends things with this married man. But before they would break up, this married man, this ex-boyfriend, would introduce Lisa to another man, a man known as Simon Gitani. In early 2010, Lisa was unhappy with her living situation. She just didn't like where she lived. She wanted to move. And Simon, he would offer her a room in his apartment, you know, until she figured out what she wanted to do. Lisa accepted this offer. Now, like I said, Lisa and her mom were extremely close. So she would tell her everything. So 
when she began living with Simon on this temporary basis. At first, she told her mom that she thought Simon was into guys. She did not think he was into women at all. But after two months of living together, their relationship just progressed and turned into a romantic one. So who was this Simon Gitani? Simon was born in the western suburbs of Maryland in 1973. He is a Lebanese Christian who has five siblings who were all raised in Australia after his parents migrated here. It is believed that Simon, he grew up in a loving and pretty close-knit family. When he met Lisa, he was 37 years old and he had many business ventures, but one of them was an online women's shoe company called Shoe Candy. Now, Simon, he didn't have a squeaky clean past. In 1991, when he was 18 years old, he savagely punched a deli owner when this deli owner told him to stop harassing one of the female employees. This female employee was his ex-girlfriend, and Simon's friend held down this deli owner while Simon was beating him. Now, I believe he received good behavior bond for this incident. Now, he clearly did not exhibit any good behavior because just three years later, police would come knocking on Simon's door because Simon was being investigated for theft. This theft incident allegedly took place at Simon's work, and I also believe police had found stolen items in Simon's car. Here it is. They found a camcorder, a TV, a car stereo, a mobile phone, and a couple of gold rings and an orange and black bikini. These items allegedly had belonged to his neighbor, a woman that had just lived a couple doors down from him. So two detectives went to Simon's family home where he was living at the time to arrest Simon for this. And I'm not sure if this arrest was for the theft at his workplace or for the theft of this woman's items. So it was unclear. Now the detectives arrived at Simon's home in plain clothes. They weren't wearing uniforms. And when they tried to serve this arrest warrant on Simon, things just went wrong. The next thing the detectives know, one of them gets hit over the head by Simon. And then another one gets hit by like a boombox or a stereo by one of Simon's family members, either his mother or his sister. So a struggle ensues. And then this detective, he falls on top of Simon on top of a bed. So Simon's on the bottom and the detective's on top of Simon and they're struggling. And then before he knows it, the detective feels his ear in Simon's mouth, like in between Simon's teeth. And he tells Simon, don't do it, don't do it. But Simon did it. He bit through this detective's ear, severing a 20 cent piece off. That is huge. That's like my whole ear. That's my whole, I'm telling you, that's my whole ear. I'm going to get you a 20 cent piece. Hold on. Okay, I got one. And it's not as big as I thought. Maybe they were bigger back in the day, but look, it's about that big. That's pretty, I mean, okay, it's not my whole ear. What am I thinking? That's like half my ear. That's pretty wild. Anyway, both these cops, these detectives had to be treated at the hospital. Simon pled guilty to a bunch of charges and he, um, was sentenced to two years of periodic detention. Now, the prosecution actually appealed this sentence, stating that it was too lenient for a man like Simon, but the court 
decided that no, Simon can be saved by religion. And this was due to the fact that a priest had actually supported Simon and stated that he had undergone religious conversion. The judge who sentenced him believed that Simon, who was 21 at the time, had dedicated himself to his religion and he had seriously committed himself to it. The prosecution, however, was like, come on, like suddenly becoming religious. It's clearly, it's clearly an act. And they believed this act was for the specific purpose of getting a lenient sentence. But the court was like, no, he's a good young man with a stable upbringing. You know, this priest is supporting him. So no, they believed that Simon was genuine. So for 18 months, Simon genuinely left Australia to stay at a monastery east of Paris. He prayed for seven hours a day, ate his meals alone in his little cell. So he's a changed man now, right? But no, because Simon left the monastery um, after 18 months because he could not commit to a life of celibacy. So Simon, he went back to the good life, living it up in Sydney. But in 2001, Simon was caught again, this time for being involved in the supply of drugs. Now he was pulled over in his Porsche and they found 52 tablets of ecstasy, as well as loads of cash. He pled guilty and he was sentenced to two years behind bars where he would be released in late 2003. So after this, it's believed that he started to live more of an honest life, started this shoe company, online shoe company called Shoe Candy, and then he met Lisa. So like I said, Lisa moves into Simon's apartment, which was meant to be a temporary arrangement, but after two months, they hit it off and started a romantic relationship. So they started off as friends, right? And then it turned into a romantic relationship, but then they fell in love very quickly. Soon after they start this relationship, Lisa calls her mom. She tells her mom, you know, I'm so in love. And she believed that Simon was the one. So Simon and Lisa essentially started their relationship living together while dating. And although Simon was a little bit older than, well, a lot older than Lisa. She was 28, 29. He was 37. He was fun, outgoing. He was flashy. He was also quite fit and he really enjoyed the luxurious things in life. He went to the gym a lot. He kept up with his appearance and he, to be honest, he dressed well. He looked well, looked good. And he was very supportive of Lisa, at least in the beginning. Then just before Lisa's 29th birthday in June, 2010, Simon begins to tell Lisa that she should quit her job. She was working at that hair institute slash salon and he began convincing her to leave and telling her that she needed to surround herself with a better class of people. He then even attended her workplace and caused a scene which basically caused her to quit. Tracy Howe, who is a domestic violence expert, she stated that this was a common tactic of controlling men. They purposely sabotage a woman so she can't work. And they do it in many different ways. Like they'll call you heaps. And if you don't answer, then they'll be really pissed. So when they do call you next time, you have to drop whatever you're doing so that, you know, they don't get upset. If they're sick, they make you stay at home. So you have to look after them. So then that makes it hard for you to go to work. And then once you're out of the workplace, you're not seeing 
people every single day, people who would notice signs, people who would, you know, notice if things were wrong. And that's probably one of the reasons why they want you out of the workplace in the first place. And once they kind of get you all to themselves, that's when they go to town. And that's exactly what happened with Lisa. By September of 2010, Simon had now signed a new lease at a luxury apartment, high-rise apartment called The Hyde. These apartments were really beautiful. They overlooked Hyde Park, which is one of Australia's, I think it is Australia's oldest park. And it's that's why it's called The Hyde. It's just a really beautiful luxury, luxury apartment. This park is also smack bang in the middle of Sydney's business district. And it's just a beautiful place to live in their apartment was really beautiful. I believe today when I Googled it, it can go for like $2 million for just this apartment, which is a lot for an apartment. And it's between a thousand to a thousand five hundred a week to rent. It was on the 15th floor. It had two bedrooms, a marble bathroom, stone benches in the kitchen, luxury appliances, balcony, like a big balcony. It was really beautiful. And even though I know this is hard for a lot of people, I think especially people who don't have, um, you know, a lot of luxury things and men are kind of giving you these luxury things. I think you have to remember not to be fooled by luxury. At the end of the day, it's just a material item. It's never truly going to bring you happiness. You know what I mean? Like money is different. I guess money does kind of bring you security, bring you happiness, but oh, not happiness, but you know, security, which in turn can relieve some stress. But in terms of like living in a beautiful home or you know, and it's hard to say because I just moved, <laughs> just moved houses. But yeah, these things don't bring you true happiness, not, not at the cost of your peace. So soon after moving into this luxury apartment, this is when Simon began to get rid of Lisa's friends, slowly cutting them off one by one. At one point, he hacked into her email account and he deleted any emails that he believed were from men. He actually also deleted emails that were just from friends. Then her Facebook friend list just started magically becoming shorter and shorter. They stopped going out to clubs, which is something they did often because Simon just didn't like the attention that Lisa would get from any men. Lisa also began going by her middle name, Cecilia, because Simon liked that better. Lisa would often confide in her mother and in a text message, to her mother on 2nd October 2010, which is just months into their um, relationship, Lisa said, I miss my family and friends so much. I have no life. She would continually email her mom, Joan, about issues and problems in her relationship with Simon and confide in her whenever she needed to. She would talk about the issues she was facing and the arguments that her and Simon got into. In one email, she reassures her mom. She says, it's okay, mom. He's calmed down now. You know, the stress is getting to both of us. Her mom responded by saying, you know, do you need to leave? Is everything okay? You need to just get out. He is not good. Lisa then responds by saying, please don't send messages like that, mom. He reads them, okay? So then Simon takes it a step further. He starts buying her new clothes. He starts picking out her outfits, dressing her for the day. He tells her to get rid of all her nice dresses and her outfits. Simon also then didn't like Lisa attending the gym because, you know, men would look at her at the gym. So then he got her a private female trainer. 
Lisa even then got baptized and converted to Catholicism for him. The normal day-to-day things like meeting friends would stop. She would make excuses to her friends and family about why she couldn't meet them or why she couldn't attend certain events and things that she normally did, you know, it wasn't like anything new, just normal things that she did. She didn't do anymore. She began to lose confidence and she just stopped speaking up for herself. She just completely gave into him and I've never been in this situation. So I don't understand why, like not in a romantic control situation, but I always wonder why do we as women just allow this to happen or even men who go through these types of controlling relationships? Is it just to please them? You just don't want to deal with the crap they're going to give you later on? What is it that makes you want to make the other person happy that even unreasonable requests seem normal? You know, do they mind fuck you so bad that you completely lose yourself. I know it's common for men or certain men, women to prey on, you know, certain types of people. Is that it? Because Lisa and Simon were only together for months at this stage. Does living together just progress the relationship that much faster? So you feel like you know this person so much better. So you want to just make them happy because you want to be with them. Or was Simon just a master manipulator? Lisa loved Simon, but she didn't want to live a life like this. This relationship was quickly progressing into the type where she could not do anything without Simon's permission. She had no career, no friends, no hobbies, no life. In December 2010, Lisa returns back to Canada to attend a friend's wedding. And she actually arrived after the wedding because... Simon did not like her being at huge events like a wedding. He was jealous, insecure, possessive. And Lisa, she wanted to accommodate his needs and make him feel comfortable, even if she didn't agree with his requests. She was instructed by Simon that, you know, she can go to Canada for this wedding, but she couldn't attend any parties and she would only be spending time with her family, no friends. So on her way to Canada, Simon gives her a new phone. So as soon as she lands in Canada, she turns on this phone and the phone immediately starts ringing. When she was in Canada, she would tell her friends and her family that Simon had given her this phone and she had to make sure that it was always on her and that she would answer it immediately. He called her constantly on this trip to check up on what she was doing, where she was at, who she was with. She would reject party invites and ask them to be unsent to her so that Simon wouldn't get upset when he would check her Facebook or her emails. They even had a rule set in place for Lisa that if she could not answer her phone, she would have to call Simon back within two minutes. He managed to control her from a whole different country. When she was in Canada, I believe when she got there, he sent her this text and I'll read it to you. He said, please don't let any guy talk to you and please don't look at any guy as your eyes should only gaze on me, the one. And you know, like reading it, just quickly reading it, I can see how some people may find that to be quite romantic, but Her friends were shocked that she was even with a guy like Simon. She didn't even look like herself. I mean, she was beautiful, but she didn't 
look like her normal self. Her hair was always tied back in like this slick bun. She never wore it out. She always wore black. She always wore pants and covered up tops, really plain clothes. And she no longer wore makeup. Now, during this trip, she also made a comment to her mom saying, how does Simon always know where I am? And her mom was like, I think he has your phone bugged, babe. Like, that's the only way. And Lisa, she just brushed this off and she said, there's no way, no way that Simon would do that. Now, little did Lisa know, Simon did in fact install spyware and tracking software on Lisa's new phone. This new phone that he had given her right before she went to Canada. This allowed him to know where she was at all times, what she was doing, because he could read all her texts and emails. So I said she visited Canada in December for this wedding, but I also read a couple reports that she actually went to Canada twice in 2010. One was for a wedding and one was to um, spend time with her family during Christmas. So maybe the wedding wasn't in December, but she went to Canada for this wedding. But then in December, she went for Christmas to spend time with her family. And I don't know why he didn't come with her, you know, given that they're dating, but maybe she didn't want him to meet family, you know, that quickly. But it was during this visit that her friends and family really noticed a huge change in Lisa, like a big one. During this trip, they actually begged Lisa to stay in Canada, to just not return back to Australia. They told her, you know, you seem so different. You don't seem happy. Just stay here. You don't have to go back to Australia. He's in a whole other country but Lisa chose to go back to Simon but her friends and family they knew something was up and they couldn't really stop her and this is because the level of control that Simon had over Lisa was just undeniable now we don't know what he was doing you know to show her that this behavior was okay because you know he loved her and he was doing all of this because he loved her we don't know we weren't there he would make her feel like all the arguments they were having were her fault. She thought it was up to her to change, to be exactly what he wanted. It was her job to become the woman of his dreams. Now, another interesting part of this case is that they used to film themselves together a lot. And at first I was like, were they on YouTube? Were they vlogging? But no, they just liked to film themselves. They would just share what they were doing and like talk and chat and just film themselves on their phones. It's almost like a video diary, like almost like Lisa intentionally did this. So on 10th June, 2011, now this is like six months later, she secretly records a conversation between her and Simon that took place in bed. So it's late at night, they're in bed and I'll try and share what was going on. Now, a lot of people only play a couple snippets of this conversation and then people argue like, saying that, you know, it's taken out of context and this very easily can be taken out of context because you need to listen to the whole thing. You need to understand what happened before and after this conversation. So I will leave the link below for the entire recording so you guys can, you know, make up your own mind. And if you do listen to the whole conversation, leave your thoughts down below. I want to know what you guys think. But basically in this recording, Lisa sounds like she's really upset. She sounds like she's worried and just almost trying to communicate that she's unhappy. But when she pours out her worries to him, Simon responds with, that's cute. I think what I can gather from this conversation is that their relationship was not horrible all the time. There were some good times. There was love 
you know, if you want to call it that. But if the allegations are true, it was simmering into something that was just not healthy, not safe. Literally a couple days later, it is Lisa's 30th birthday and Simon throws her a dinner and it's this, it's at this fancy restaurant and not a single one of Lisa's friends were in attendance. Everyone in attendance was Simon's friends and Simon's family. At this birthday dinner, Lisa gets up and she gives a little speech and she just praises Simon that he was such a good man, that he had given her the gift of God, that he was so good to her. And she does seem very submissive towards him, which is, you know, not unusual. Given that it's her 30th birthday and, you know, how she used to dress prior, she is dressed very modest, very covered up. She's wearing a black long coat, a high neck top. She's wearing pants. Her hair is slicked back and I believe she's wearing makeup. I believe she's wearing makeup, but I could be wrong. But normally, you know, when it's your 30th birthday, especially if you don't have kids and stuff, you're still kind of like, you know, wanting to look glam. And even if you have kids, you're like wanting to look glam. And, you know, most girls, especially if they um, already were like that at one point, you would expect them to be a little bit more dressed up than she is. But I mean, she still looks great. But yeah, it just doesn't look like her. So at this party over a year into their relationship, Simon then proposes to Lisa and she accepted. I've also read comments online stating that if you truly watch Lisa and watch her reaction during the proposal, she's crying a lot, but her tears to a lot of people seem like almost scared tears, not like happy, joyous, you know, oh, I'm getting engaged tears. That night, Lisa calls her mother, Joan, and her brother, Jason, to let them know that she was now engaged to Simon. And Joan and Jason are super upset from the outset. They didn't even fake being happy. They never knew she wanted to marry Simon and they did not congratulate her and they were not happy for her. Now, prior to this, allegedly, Simon had deleted all happy birthday wishes that Lisa had received from friends and family. He had done this from her phone and her email. And it wasn't just a regular birthday, right? Like it was her 30th birthday. So in Lisa's eyes, nobody from her side even bothered to wish her. And Lisa, as you can imagine, she was pretty upset by this. But when her friends and family were trying to convince her like, hey, no, we did wish you, like I swear, she didn't believe them. And at that time, no one really understood why she hadn't received any of their well wishes. I guess at this point, the tension and stress of their relationship started building up because it was just getting worse and worse. And Lisa at this point decided that, okay, she wanted to end things with Simon. But the problem was that she wanted to stay in Australia. And her mom, Joan, had been told by Lisa that Simon had threatened her that if she ever left him, the first thing he would do was make her get out of Australia. If she ever left him, he would have her deported. And the only place she would be going to if she left him was the airport. So it's also, you know, alleged that Lisa stayed with him for, you know, that period of time because she believed she had a higher chance of becoming an Australian citizen as opposed to leaving him and him destroying everything she had worked for. Three weeks later, Simon and Lisa, they walk into the home of Michelle Richmond, who was a life coach. Lisa was referred to Michelle by her personal trainer, Lisa Brown, so two Lisas, uh, because Lisa had seen signs in Lisa that all was not okay with her. 
And she's like, maybe Michelle can help you. Simon dropped Lisa off to Michelle's home for her first session, which he actually believed was for Lisa to be treated for ballet injuries. So he didn't actually know that Lisa was seeing a life coach. He thought she was like seeing a physiotherapist. According to Michelle, Lisa felt very safe with her and she began opening up almost immediately. The more she talked to Michelle, the more she realized what was happening in her relationship of a year and a half was just not normal. That she had accepted this new way of life, this way of life that Simon wanted her to live, you know, this monochrome life of black and white, no makeup, you know, hair tied up in a bun and only doing what Simon wanted her to do. She talked about her eating disorder and how she felt like that was the only thing she could control in her life, the only thing that Simon wasn't controlling. A final straw for Lisa and what kind of made her want to leave Simon for real had to do with the wedding. And it was because Lisa, so after they got engaged, they were engaged for like three weeks, she wanted to begin planning the wedding. And she begins asking Simon, you know, when can we plan the wedding? Let's start. And he allegedly told her, I'll let you know when we're going to start planning it. Until then, shut up. So super romantic guy. So soon Lisa began confiding in these two women, her personal trainer, Lisa Brown, and her life coach, Michelle Richmond. She wanted to leave Simon. So these two women were giving her advice on the best way and how to go about it. They gave her advice and Michelle told her what help and support services were available and what her legal rights were if she were was to leave Simon. And if she was to leave Simon, what was the safest way to leave Simon? So with her personal trainer's help, Lisa Brown's help, Lisa began slowly removing some of her personal belongings from the apartment she shared with Simon. They only took a few items at a time and then they put it into storage. At this point, as you can imagine, Joan is getting more and more concerned. I mean, if you're a mom, I feel like that mom gut feeling is just like, hello, like something ain't right. And Joan was an incredible mom to Lisa. She was always there, always supportive, like whatever you need, I'm here for you. And so Lisa asked for her mom, Joan's help. She asked her, come to Australia and take me back to Canada. Lisa messages her mom says, I need you down here. Joan responds with, how bad is it? Do you need me right now? Because I will come right now. And she then informs Lisa about her work. You know, she needs to inform her work that she's going to be leaving to come to Australia to help her daughter. So Lisa tells her, it's okay, I can handle it for a couple more days. Simon then finds out that Lisa has been removing some of her personal belongings from the apartment and he lost his shit. He then messages Lisa Brown, the personal trainer, and Michelle Richmond and tells them to stay away from Lisa. He sent a message to both of them from Lisa's phone, pretending to be Lisa, stating that Lisa never wanted to see the two of them again. But the both both women knew that that text message was not from Lisa, that she didn't want them to go away, that she needed help. Simon then makes a call to Michelle Richmond. And during this heated conversation, he says to Michelle, Michelle, you effing bitch. If you ever come in contact with Cecilia, Lisa, again, I know where you live. I will effing harm you. And Michelle was genuinely afraid. He did know where she lived. And if you just watch his demeanor and the way he might come across to people, he does seem very threatening. At this point, when Simon found out about, you know, how she was removing her personal belongings and stuff like that, like she was being very secretive about it, about it. 
And she was like, how the hell does he know everything I'm doing? Every step I take, every move I make. That's the song. She was just like, how does he know everything I'm doing? Everything. So she started to look around the apartment and then she decides to hop onto Simon's computer. On his computer, she finds a software program installed. This program allowed Simon to see every call, every text message, every email, every airline booking that Lisa made. He was tracking her every move. She was officially done with Simon. Lisa knew she couldn't wait any longer. She couldn't wait for her mom to come down, to come and get her. She had to leave, just grab her bag and leave. So on the morning of 30th July, 2011, she planned to do exactly that. I believe her mom was in the process of booking her a flight that very day to get out of Australia back to Canada. Early that morning with the bag packed, Lisa hid in their luxurious marble bathroom and she calls her mom, Joan. She sounded panicked, but this is how the conversation went. Mommy, I just want you to know that I love you and Jason with all my heart. What's wrong? asked Joan. Mommy, if anything happens to me, please contact Michelle. Lisa then insisted that her mother take down Michelle Richmond's details you know, the life coach who she had been confiding in for the past few weeks. And she asked her mom to like read the details back to her to confirm, you know, you've got Michelle's number, right? And her mom says, what the hell is going on? And she just says, mommy, it's okay. I'll call and talk to you as soon as I can, however I can. Now at that same time, Simon was trying to log onto his computer and he noticed that the password had been changed. He was annoyed by this, but according to him, he didn't do anything about it. He just watched some porn instead. Later on, after a while, he asks Lisa, what happened? You know, who changed the password to my computer? Lisa responds with, I changed the password because I don't trust you. It was then that she confronted Simon about his monstrous breach of trust. Lisa then tells him, you know, I've packed a bag and I've booked my flight. I'm out of here. And Simon, he then challenged her. So Lisa grabs her bag, her handbag, and she runs to the front door. And there was a spy camera installed that Simon himself had installed. And it was near their front door and it captures this image. Simon chases after Lisa grabs her, places his hand over her mouth to prevent her from screaming to the neighbors for help. 69 seconds after this image was captured, Lisa Harnum would be laying dead on the sidewalk beneath them. Lisa had fallen 15 stories down to her death. Witnesses on the scene rushed to her side to offer her aid. One of the witnesses was Dr. Angus Gray. He was an orthopedic surgeon and he was driving past when he saw this commotion on the sidewalk. So he gets out and he approaches Lisa. He tries to resuscitate her with chest compressions, but he realized it was too late. Joshua Rathmel was another witness and he was actually walking through Hyde Park, the park opposite their apartment. He was on his way to work when he heard deranged screaming coming from a male voice. He states, my attention was drawn to the Hyde apartment building 
and I saw a man with no shirt on holding what at the time I thought was black luggage or a black large object. I then see the man unload the object off the balcony in a fluid-like motion almost. I then saw the man go straight back inside the apartment. There was no hanging around on the balcony. This man is alleged to be Simon Gitani. Simon then emerges from the Hyde apartment building wearing a white t-shirt and red striped pajama pants. He runs to the pavement where Lisa was laying from a distance. He observes her and then he approaches her yelling, come back, baby, come back to me. A 15 story fall. There's no surviving that. The police arrive on scene. Simon quickly tells them his version of events and he tells them that they had gotten into an argument, that she became hysterical and she had leaned over the balcony. He goes on to say that he tried to save her, but she slipped over and fell. Now, meanwhile, her mom, Joan, is expecting Lisa to be back, you know, on this plane coming back to Canada. Joan was frantic. She was trying to reach Lisa since that call that Lisa had made to her earlier that morning. Joan just kept calling and calling and calling, saying, you know, Simon, are you there? I need to talk to Lisa. Just let me talk to Lisa. She doesn't hear back and she just knew immediately something was wrong. And she gets a call later on that night to confirm what she had suspected all along. At first, Joan thought it was actually Lisa calling her but it wasn't her. It was the Toronto police and they were outside her building. So she buzzed them into her apartment and immediately Joan screamed, he killed her. Her family was notified of her death and immediately her family just knew that Simon had killed Lisa for attempting to leave their relationship. They were just devastated. Now the trial honestly was a shit show. It was all over the news. And by that time, Simon had a new girlfriend. Her name was Rachel Louise. Now this woman, let me tell you, she's either extremely manipulative and a massive attention seeker, or she's really gullible, or she's just batshit crazy. Cause I'm not going to get too much into it because I feel like she can like her interview alone can be a whole episode so I'm gonna leave it linked down below if you want to watch but long story short she basically believes Simon a hundred percent in everything that he says she believes he didn't do anything she supports Simon in everything he says she makes an excuse for every single one of his bad behaviors this show even recreated down to the 69 seconds play by play of what would have taken place between that image that was captured at their front door to her falling off the balcony. I recommend you guys watch it if you're interested in this case, but everything that they say that she literally has an answer for, she literally has an excuse for, she tries to explain things. Um, You know, when Simon was caught with drugs in his car prior to Lisa, it actually wasn't his drugs, it was his friend's drugs. And now is he guilty by association because he's, you know, driving with a friend who has been dealing with drugs and then when um asked about whether you know Simon could have pushed Lisa off the balcony she's like well how Simon's only this tall and then how can they actually Simon can't even pick up Lisa Lisa's too heavy for him like it's just all these 
excuses really but at the same time if you watch that um play by play of how they try to show whether Simon could have pushed Lisa off the balcony it's a bit like kind of makes you question it now the defense and the prosecution have two very different versions of what actually took place that day Simon's lawyers claim that when this argument took place about the computer Lisa runs out of the apartment and she's like help me God, help me. And Simon goes and he grabs her and he brings her back into the apartment. And the reason why he did this was because it was extremely embarrassing for him to, you know, have her do this. The neighbors could hear. And he was embarrassed of her behavior. So he brings her back into the apartment. He sits her down on the couch and then he walks over to the kitchen where he wants to make a cup of tea. As he's making the tea, he looks up at Lisa and he sees her run from the couch towards the balcony. He chases her, but by the time he got to the balcony, she was over the glass balustrade and her left leg was the last part of her to go over. He sees her hanging on the awning of the balcony. He says they look into each other's eyes and then in a split second, she's gone. Now, Simon does admit that some of his behavior can be controlling or um, seen as controlling, but he claims it was merely to protect Lisa because when she drank, she became too flirty with men. And the defense would then use her past as support for their claims that she wanted to end her life. She had an eating disorder, the court would hear, that she developed this illness as a teenager when she was a ballerina, that she slit her wrists as a teen and she had a history of anxiety and often suffered from suicidal thoughts. And I'm not sure how that would go in court if Simon is claiming that, you know, he knows this because he was with Lisa and this is what Lisa had told him of her past. Like I mentioned about that reenactment of the 69 seconds between that image and her death, they claimed it was physically impossible for Simon to lift Lisa up and throw her over the 1.2 meter tall glass balustrade. And that was because Simon was 1.69 meters tall. Lisa was taller than him and she weighed 50 kilos. So they basically painted a picture of how it was how difficult it was and virtually impossible for someone his height to do. But if you're strong enough, you know, but I don't know, 50 kilos is not very, what is that? Like a hundred something pounds, like 110 pounds. I don't think that's too heavy for a man to lift. The prosecution on the other hand painted Simon out to be extremely controlling, manipulative, and destructive towards Lisa, that he was not satisfied with her even having a tiny bit of freedom, a tiny part of her life that he didn't know about or control. He needed to know everything, control everything, that her isolation was exactly what he wanted, what he sought out to do from the start. Their claims were once that image was captured of Simon and Lisa with his hand over her mouth at the balcony, that once that took place, he rendered Lisa unconscious. He knocked her out before dragging her to the balcony and then throwing her over. They claim that he did this in a fit of rage. Simon's team argues that this doesn't make sense because there was no wounds on Lisa consistent with being rendered unconscious, no blunt force trauma, no injuries to the face. But an expert did claim that with sufficient pressure on Lisa's neck, he could 
render her unconscious. But then I also heard that that would make throwing her over the balcony that much more difficult because she was now dead weight. She wasn't fighting back and he like pushed her over. But again, in a fit of rage, anything is possible. During her autopsy, Lisa was found, oh my gosh, with a broken back, broken ribs and a broken leg. And the most telling part of this is that Lisa had a note in her pocket that was ripped to tiny pieces. And when they put the pieces of this note back together, it was written in Lisa's handwriting. And the note stated, there are surveillance cameras inside and outside the house. Now also disputing the, she jumped over the edge herself theory is that none of her fingerprints were found on the glass. However, Simon's camp disputes this because they um, tested it out. And basically if she ran and she grabbed onto the glass like this and she like jumped over, but she didn't just grab the glass like this. She like grabbed it and smeared it. The fingerprints would have been smeared. So no identifiable fingerprints would have been found on the glass. Police also accessed Simon's computer and they found the cameras and that software. He was tracking her phone, reading her texts and listening to her phone calls. And it was even shocking to law enforcement how far he went to control her. In the end, the evidence that was left behind proved to be too strong. The chilling video of her face in those final moments as she struggled against Simon, the CCTV footage of Simon going down in the elevator and he seemed so agitated as he's, you know, waiting to see his fiance's dead body on the pavement. The fact that her handbag was with Lisa and the torn up note found in her pocket. I mean, all of this were crucial clues left behind by a tortured, tortured woman. The judge then said it was likely that Simon had rendered Lisa unconscious before unloading her off their 15 story balcony. In November of 2013, Simon Gitani was found guilty of murder and sentenced to 26 years in prison with a non-parole period of 18 years. He will be eligible for parole in 2031. When the verdict was read out, his girlfriend at the time, Rachel Louise, she screamed, you're wrong. Like she couldn't believe it. And one of his sisters, I believe, also screamed, you know, in the name of Jesus, you won't be serving any of that time. Like they really believed that uh, he was above the law. Now, following this, Lisa's mother, Joan, is determined to spread awareness about domestic violence. She gives some really good advice. She says, pay attention. If you see changes like they're dressing differently or losing contact with their friends, you've got to start asking the right questions. And if you really think it's that bad, step in. That's the message we're trying to get out there. It's never too late to interfere. And it's right. I mean, if someone had just stepped in and, you know, helped Lisa, you know, not to say that it's anyone's fault, but yeah, if they just kind of pushed her a little bit more and pushed into the relationship a little bit more, like what what's going on in your relationship? Maybe things would be very different. Simon continues to claim his innocence. A lot of people are saying that if it wasn't for those cameras that Simon had installed himself, that he could have claimed that Lisa did jump over herself. And my question is, he for sure had more cameras in the apartment. Like what happened to the footage of that? What happened to the footage of 
I'm sure he had cameras just like in the living room. What happened to all that footage? I mean, maybe it wasn't turned on at the time, but it's almost like, dang, like wouldn't that whole thing have been captured on camera? An article I read when researching about domestic violence states each year millions of beautiful, vibrant and highly educated women and men fall victim to a domestic violence situation. It is hard to observe and understand how someone you love could have gotten themselves in such a situation. If you know someone in a domestic violence situation, it is important to not become angry with them and or judgmental. I will leave the Elisa Harnam Foundation linked below. It's super informative in recognizing signs and other helpful resources for anyone who might feel like they need help or anyone that you know may need help. I think um, by reading a lot of these articles in relation to this case, reports and headlines, it's easy to see how they painted Simon to be a horrible man. And I'm not saying he's not, but installing the spyware and malware and all that alone was creepy. But it also shows you that he was an extremely insecure man. But 69 seconds from that image at the front door to off the balcony is wild. No screams were heard as Lisa fell. And you'd have to scream. You would be terrified. This is why I feel like for me, this is what solidifies the fact that she was probably unconscious when she fell, but an unconscious person cannot throw themselves off the balcony. Together with that man, Joshua, who saw, you know, a man unloading something off the balcony, it's, yeah. But in Simon's defense, when they try to recreate the motion, like with someone his height and someone Lisa's weight, the same um, height of the balcony balustrade being 1.2 meters, it kind of does seem pretty impossible. But then, like I said before, rage, anger, you know, adrenaline can play a part and these people are reenacting something. It's They don't have those same emotions that would have been present on that day. What do you guys think? Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. If anyone feels like they're in a similar situation, please reach out to your local resources, confide in a friend or family member, someone you trust. You never have to suffer in silence. You are worth your life. Comment down below, even saying hi. I will try to respond to as many of you guys as possible. And I will see you in next week's video. Besitos. Bye.